Well, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, and while you're turning, let me define a word for you. And the word is redundant. Redundant. The best definition of redundant is to unnecessarily repeat something that is unnecessarily repetitive and repeat it unnecessarily. I think that's a good definition. i give you some examples. This is an actual sign that was found hanging in an office. Quote, this office will not tolerate redundancy in this office. You think about it, it'll hit you in a minute. The famed baseball player and coach Yogi Berra, who was famous for his redundancies, he said, quote, Sometimes you can observe a lot just by watching. And then, okay, well, that makes sense. Movie executive Samuel Goldwyn is famous for saying, anyone who goes to a psychiatrist ought to have his head examined. That's redundant. But my favorite of all is the actress Brooke Shields is famous for her comments on the dangers of smoking. She says, quote, smoking can kill you. And if you've been killed, you've lost a very important part of your life. Okay. Now, I say all that to tell you that my sermon topic for this evening is, in fact, repetitively redundant. As we've been examining the command of Christ to pray kingdom prayers, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been using the last section of Isaiah here to guide our thinking, and tonight is redundant. It is, our exhortation is to pray for God's answers to prayer. To pray for God's answers to prayer. Not just to pray for answers, but to pray for the answers. Now, you might think I'm off my rocker, but can I prove to you that this is exactly what Jesus told us to do? On the one hand, for example, he said, I will build my church, Matthew 16, verse 18, that the church of Jesus Christ will be built. Every single elect person will be saved. That will happen. On one hand, he says this. On the other hand, in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are, laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In other words, we're to pray for that which is already guaranteed to happen. When somebody says, well, you're a Calvinist, that means that you don't pray for things to happen. I would say, no, Calvinists know that we are to pray for things precisely because they are going to happen. I mean, that's... I'd rather swing a bat at a ball that I know is going over the fence than one that I'm not sure will be hit. And so tonight we find ourselves in Isaiah 65 and what we might really look at as a prayer guide for prayers that are already going to be answered. It's not a call to relax. It's a call to increase our prayers because we have confidence. We have joy. And by the way, tonight's text has a delightful surprise in it that I'm just going to save for the very end. It's such an encouragement to us right now in this moment, but we'll just save that for the very end. But Isaiah 65 is very much a study in contrast. It's sort of a, it it almost could be an extended commentary on Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the story of the wicked versus the righteous. And Psalm, or, or chapter 65 here in Isaiah, is a lengthy version of this. What is the future of the wicked versus what is the future of the righteous? Those made righteous by the grace of God through faith in Christ. So how do you pray for God's answers to prayer, for those things that are already guaranteed? Well, I want to give you six ways to do that tonight, plus a little surprise at the end. And we have a long text, so we want to go ahead and dive in here. The first way to pray for God's answers to prayer is very contemporary for us now, but future in Isaiah's day. First of all, pray for God's church. 
Pray for God's church. Now, God is going to open this section of his word delivered to Isaiah with his position toward the Gentiles in contrast to his position toward unfaithful Jews. We want to be very precise to say this is not a statement of replacement, that God is somehow replacing Israel with the church. It's simply a statement affirming the inclusive nature of the Abrahamic covenant, that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we see this in verse 1. Chapter 65, the Lord is speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, who is he speaking of here? This cannot be speaking of Israel. They would never be identified as a nation not called by his name. So the only other alternative Gentiles. Now I want you to notice here the doctrine of the call of God, that it's God who initiates our salvation, not mankind. God describes himself as, as prepared to be sought by those who didn't ask for him, who didn't seek him. And it certainly reminds us of Romans 3, verse 11, that no one seeks for God. And so God here, he speaks of issuing a call. Here I am, here I am. Now to be fair... In Old Covenant days, God has always had an open door to the Gentiles. That has always been the case. Certainly, we have the example of the Canaanite Rahab, the Moabite Ruth, as examples to God's grace to Gentiles. Exodus 12, verse 48, allows for Gentiles to join Israel, to become Israelites. But now, here in Isaiah 61, it isn't, God isn't talking about joining Israel, having Gentiles come to Israel him this is more the dynamic of god going out to the gentiles of him reaching out i think a good illustration of this is found in the book of amos amos looks ahead to the restoration of israel and he foresees how god identifies the nations not as an enemy but the nations as his own people it's very interesting this contrast amos 9 verses 11 and 12 see if you can hear israel and then the nations in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. In other words, the Davidic kingship will return. Then in verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations, wait a minute, who are called by my name. Now they are called by my name. Why? Because salvation has come to all of the nations and now we who are Gentiles, can be called by the name of Christ, by the name of the Lord. So verse 11, the people of God who are Jews, verse 12, the people of God who are Gentiles, all saved by the blood of Christ. Well, because of her rebellion, God would for a time turn away from Israel and turn to the Gentiles to populate the kingdom with kingdom citizens. When did this transition start? Well, obviously here in Isaiah 65, we see a prophecy of this transition, but when did it actually take place? When did God turn from Israel for a time, turn away from Israel rather, and turn to the Gentiles? Well, I want to show you when this transition happened. So maybe keep a finger there in Isaiah 65 and turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to go to the New Testament, to Matthew 12, and what we're going to see is a shift, a a transition, a turning Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22. 
What we have here is a very familiar situation. If you read through the Gospels a couple of times, you'll remember that Jesus very often dealt with demon-oppressed, demon-possessed people. And we see another instance here. His power over evil spirits is unassailable. Verse 22 of Matthew 12. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that is Satan, that this man casts out demons. In other words, he is saying, they are saying to to him and to everyone around him, he is doing this by the power of Satan, by the satanic spirit. So Jesus refutes this ridiculous claim with brilliant theological logic, and he ends with a condemnation of Israel's leadership. Verse 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. You know what he just said to all of those men? Your chance to be forgiven is done. It is done. And he condemned them. And the condemnation continues in verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. In other words, there will be a a recording played back to these men. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And they will be judged by those very words. And so then, just to make it worse... These same leaders demand a sign of Jesus. They say, well, do a sign. By the way, he just healed a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, who's now seeing and talking. And they said, we want a sign. Jesus said, I'll give you one. And he calls it the sign of Jonah. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he there predicts his death and his resurrection. That's the sign I'll give you. And now, strategically placed right here in Matthew is a little incident. It's a transitional incident. And it's meant to take us from this accusation that Jesus does his miracles by the power of Satan to a new era in his ministry. And this little incident, it's just just placed right here perfectly, is in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What's the bigger message here? He's not saying, I don't have time for my mom. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, those who are in the family of God are not just the ones I'm related to by blood. It's not just the Jews. It's anyone who submits to the salvation offered by the Father through the Son. That's a transitional incident because all of a sudden his ministry takes a completely different shift. It turns. His entire teaching style changes. Chapter 13, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. 
And what are they expecting here? They're expecting the usual direct teaching. Here's what the Word of God says. Here's what I'm going to explain about it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This direct, very clear teaching of Christ. But that's not what he does. In verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And then he tells the famous parable of the soils. This was new. Verse 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, meaning to the Jews, it has not been given. So Jesus then gives an even more direct answer in verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And so God has turned away from Israel because Israel has turned away from him. And in fact, Jesus will fire the current leadership of Israel. He will tell them that you're done. Look with me at Matthew 19, just a couple of pages over. Verse 28. In verse 28, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He just fired all the Pharisees, all the priests, all the leaders, and he made the apostles the new leaders of Israel. So, when will Israel be restored? at the time when the apostles resurrected in Christ will be there to lead. That's when that will happen. Hasn't happened yet. Now, go back to Isaiah 65. Now, in the church age, it's not that God is drawing Gentiles to Israel to receive salvation. He's going to the Gentiles to give them salvation. That's what's happening now. Here's the contrast. In the Old Covenant, Exodus 12, 48 says, if a stranger should should sojourn with you if he comes to you and then god gives the ways for them to become part of israel in the new covenant matthew 28 19 go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit so the the outreach is new now it's not bring them in it's go out to them now, from Isaiah's standpoint, chapter 65, verse 1, is future. From our standpoint, we're in it. We're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of God fulfilling verse 1. And so, appropriately, our prayer is not just God build up Grace Bible Church. It's not us four, no more, shut the door. It is use us to help build your church worldwide. Bring the lost home. Save the elect and use us to do that as we join arms with other like-minded believers. So we pray for God's church. There's another way to pray for God's future answers to prayer, and that is pray for God's honor. Pray for God's honor. Now God turns his attention from the future elect Gentiles in the age that we're in to now the present-day rebellious Jews, the people who ultimately ended up in exile because of their covenant betrayal and their their disloyalty. Verse 2, 
I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. This is, this is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible to me. You want to know why? This phrase, I spread out my hands all day, this is a phrase associated in the Bible with prayer, with supplication. And yet God is the one one with his hands spread out. When Israel should have been seeking after God with her hands spread out to God, instead, he's having to seek after her. And that's so sad after everything he's done for her. And so the people have fallen into syncretism, the mixing of religions into their own unique brand. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Sacrifices were to happen in the temple, not in gardens. And what, what are these gardens? It's probably a reference to the high places earlier in Isaiah, the places where oak trees grow. They're sacrificing to pagan gods. And, and a number of weeks ago, we made a comparison to Druidism and how similar the syncretism of Israel had come to what was ancient Druidism. Very, very similar. They were sacrificing to pagan gods with some self-styled Yahweh worship thrown in there. We'll sacrifice to Asherah and to Molech and to Chemosh and to Baal and we'll throw Yahweh in there as well. You know what that's like? That's spiritual adultery. That's like a man saying, yes, you're my wife, but I'm going to bring four other women home also. No one would stand for that. They're making offerings on bricks. In other words, homemade altars, not prescribed by God, not approved by God. Listen, God most certainly affirms the idea of the regulative principle. The elements of worship not specifically given by God are not permitted. We don't get to make up what we do in our worship to God. But this wicked people took it a step further. They engaged in necromancy. That is calling upon the dead. Verse 4, they sit who sit in tombs and spread, spend the night in secret places. This is calling upon the dead necromancy and you'd say oh that's horrible that's terrible that's so wicked do you know that the default religion of american evangelicalism is necromancy what do i mean by that what happens when a loved one dies what do you hear all the time in churches well so and so is watching out for me now that is necromancy that is praying to a dead relative to believe that they bring protection to you that is wrong. That is wicked. What else did they do? They flaunted their distaste for the word of God by purposefully violating the law. They had no regard for holiness at all. Second part of verse 4, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. They were open, openly violating Leviticus 11, verse 7, and Deuteronomy 14, 8. The dietary laws were to set apart God's people. It's not that... It's not that pigs were inherently wicked. It's, and we all probably had bacon for breakfast. We were not under the Mosaic law. But God gave a specific observable way to say we're different. We're set apart. And dietary law was one of those. They also were to only keep meat that was sacrificed for three days. Part of that was, was for their own safety. They didn't understand about germs and that sort of thing. But they would keep it beyond the allowable time. And it was just a way of flaunting, saying, I'm free to do whatever I want. It was a form of antinomianism, of I'm free in Yahweh to do whatever. 
We've heard that in the Christian era. We've heard, well, my freedom in Christ allows me to sin because grace covers all my sin. It's just antinomianism. They were unconcerned with the Lord's standards as a set-apart people. But here's the irony about these people. Not only were they flagrantly disobedient, but they also thought that they were a cut above others for flaunting what they perceived as freedom to do anything. Look at verse 5. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. It's ironic that the most spiritually misled are generally the most spiritually arrogant. I got an email uh, a while back from a church that wanted me to come speak at one of their events. And I, okay, I'll consider that. And they, they asked a question, but we do need to know, are you spirit-filled? And I sent back and I said, that depends on the definition. And I sent them a small email with a, an, a, a pneumatology of what spirit-filled actually means. And I said, um, I'm not your definition of spirit-filled. In other words, are you where we are? Are you the cut above? Are you the varsity Christian? And that's disgusting to the Lord. Second half of verse 5. How does God feel about this? About elitism? These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. It is a rule of the universe that whenever you're seated by a campfire, the wind will always blow toward you, right? And then you move, and it blows toward you again. And that, that burning, that irritation in your nostrils, and you can't breathe, that's what God says. Your, your elitism is like smoke in my nostrils. It's irritating. So here's God's reaction to those who pretend to be his followers, but in name only. Verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both their iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. What does that mean? That means that the judgment of God will come at the very end, everybody all together. See also Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Worshiping on the mountains, the hilltops, the high places. This is nothing more than an attempt to get the attention of Canaanite gods. See also the Tower of Babel. That we can build a place high enough, which ironically the Tower of Babel was probably about seven stories high. wasn't even as tall as the tallest building in Bakersfield. But we're going to ascend to the gods. We're going to go high to them. And so what will God do because they've dishonored him and they've shamed him? He will pour into their laps payment. It's a word which means you have earned this. You've earned every penny of it. It's an earned wage. I'll tell you what, if only the world would understand that God will not let a single dishonoring act against him, against his honor, against his worth, against his character, against his perfection, not one will be missed. There's not a careless action, a careless thought, a careless deed that will somehow be swept under the rug. God is recording every single one. An exact payment for dishonoring the Lord will be given. What is the wage? This wage of sin is death. And how long is the punishment of the rebellious wicked? Now, now from a temporal standpoint, chapter 65 is looking ahead to future exile and to difficulties for Israel as a nation. But ultimately... This payment for sin, this, this idea of pouring what is owed to you into your lap. How long does that take? 
I think a good theological answer is it, it, it only takes as long as it does to undo every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every sinful word that you've ever committed and to undo every single consequence of every single sin. Now, good luck doing that when you're dead. You can't do it. In other words, they can't, and thus the punishment is eternal because God is eternally holy, and every violation of his holiness is an eternal violation which demands an eternal penalty. I'll tell you this. If hell isn't forever, then God is not holy. Very simple belief. God is concerned with the preservation of his honor, his reputation, what the Bible very often calls his name. Psalm 79, verse 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us, and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Ezekiel 20, verse 44, You shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Ezekiel 36, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. We ought to pray for the honor of the Lord, because we live on an earth that daily dishonors his name. Now, in verses 2 through 7, we see unfaithful Israel, but that doesn't mean that God is finished with them as a nation. A third way to pray for God's answers to prayer. Pray for God's remnant. Pray for God's remnant. For the Jews who will make up the real redeemed future Israel. The future nation that is God's beloved. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down. For my people have sought me. Now, verse 8, this picture of new wine, this draws on the imagery of judgment. And we see this imagery of judgment in chapter 63. Just flip back a page and let's remind ourselves about this metaphor, this image. Chapter 63, you recall, was a a picture, a description of the coming Messiah when he's battling for his earth. Chapter 63, verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? And we said when we did this that that means in Hebrew, who is this who looks red coming all red? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And the question is asked, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And here is the answer of Messiah. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So this is our word picture, the, the, the treading of the grapes of wrath. And we've, we sing this song. That's the word picture. And so now we come back to verse 8 of chapter 65 and that that picture is brought back to us we're back at the wine press we're back at the place where the wrath of god is about to be expressed as the crushing of bad fruit 
the crushing of what Isaiah 5 calls the wild grapes, the worthless grapes brought forth in the vineyard of God. But this picture here in verse 8 is, is so amazing because just as God is about to crush Israel, the grapes are being brought to the wine press and the Messiah is about to come and crush the people who have rebelled against him. And he says, wait, wait. As the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants sake and not destroy them all. What is the new wine? Well, super ripe grapes would often start oozing juices. They would, they would, they're so ripe, they, they crack open a little bit and ooze this juice before the crushing process began. And so all of these grapes are put into this wine press, and before they get crushed, this juice that came out naturally would be gathered, and it was considered to be the best of the best of all the wine that would be brought from this, uh, this batch of grapes. And what did they call it? They called it new wine. It came out on its own. And so while God will judge most ethnic Jews, some will be saved. The new wine, which cannot be poured into the old wineskins of the old covenant, but must come under the new covenant. And so God is merciful. And then verse 9 pictures a great homecoming. And verse 10 pictures peace and provision and rest from turmoil for this remnant, this new wine of God's chosen people. Verse 9 is very people-specific. It's offspring from Jacob, literally seeds, descendants of Jacob. Just so we make sure to, to understand what God is talking about, he's saying these are people born from the ethnic family of Jacob. This is not spiritualized. This is not the church. This is people born from Jacob. And so the people are very specific. And this is a contrast to verse 1, the people who were not called by my name. Then verse 10 is place-specific. The place of the people of God. The place of Israel. And this keeps us from spiritualizing this text to just say, well, the church is Israel or Israel is the church and it's not really that specific. This is super specific. Where will they receive blessing? Two places, Sharon and the Valley of Achor. Sharon is a 32-mile long strip of land, an average of 11 miles wide in Israel it is a, it's a coastal plain. It has the Mediterranean Ocean on one side, the Central Highlands on the east. It's a, it's a plain that has soil that's deep and it's rich. And today on the plain of Sharon, you have orange trees, grape vineyards, olive orchards, and they grow really well there. And the plain of Sharon is famous for something else. Every spring, it's just filled with wildflowers everywhere. This blooming, beautiful valley. In fact, the Song of Solomon Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1, speaks of the famous Rose of Sharon. Uh, more accurately, the Narcissus of Sharon, but that's not nearly as poetic as Rose. And so you have Sharon, a specific place, 32 miles long, 11 miles wide. Then you have the Valley of Achor. This is a valley near Jericho, and this is really important to understand. The Valley of Achor is named after Achan. He is the Israelite who was stoned to death for his rebellion during the conquest. And so it means, according to Joshua 7.26, the valley of trouble. But it came to be a symbol of end times hope, of eschatological hope, of a coming change for the better. Hosea chapter 2 speaks of the coming resurrection and restoration of Israel 
Verse 15 says, And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. And he hearkens back to the olden days. He said, And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. By the way, Sharon is primarily to the north. Valley of Achor is to the south. You know what this also predicts? This predicts a reunification of Israel. Beautiful geographic specificity. So God is specific as to the people and to the places. And so we are to be very cautious about redefining national Israel away. This is an affront to the faithful, steadfast love of the Lord. Now, certainly God has placed Israel in the position of judgment as a nation. There is no national Israel today that currently looks to their Messiah, Jesus Christ, as a nation. Israel today is an apostate nation. But I think we need to take our cue from the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. Romans 11 speaks of the unbelieving Jews specifically and the nation as a whole. And the nation is pictured as an olive tree. Verse 17 says some of the branches were broken off. And this would be those in verses 6 and 7, those who are going to receive judgment. And then it goes on to speak of Gentiles who have been grafted in to receive the blessing given to Abraham, which comes through Christ. And that would be us. It's not that we become part of Israel, but we become those who receive the blessings originally given to Israel. But you ask, well, what about the original nation? What, what happens to them? Verse 24, this is shocking. The natural branches, many of those broken off, and we'll ju we're just speaking of the nation as a whole here, the natural branches will be grafted back into their own olive tree. As a matter of fact, verse 18 says, because of that, do not be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, don't say things like God is not going to restore Israel. Don't say that. That's arrogant. Now, I know that in Isaiah, we seem to talk about Israel a lot. Um, we only talk about Israel as much as Isaiah does. If it's important to God, then it's important to us. And I, I think a good illustration is a good wife. A good wife does what is important to her husband. Our dear sister Jane, who went home to be with the Lord just a few weeks ago, I don't know how many of you know this, and you probably can't picture sweet lady like Jane doing this, but because her husband loved to do this, you know what she did for many years? She rode a giant Harley Davidson. Can you picture that? I can't picture Jane in a leather jacket and boots, but that's what she did because that's what her husband loved. And so she did that. We are the bride of Christ. We are the beloved of God. And if Israel is a passion of the Lord's, then she is our passion as well because it speaks so well of God's never give up love. And so we pray for God's remnant. If you have not prayed for the rest restoration of Israel, you need to do that. That is God's will for us. But lest we think that somehow God just overlooks sin without retribution to those who won't believe, we also, here's another way to pray for God's answers to prayers. We pray for God's judgment. We pray for God's judgment. Now we have a contrast to those who will return. Suddenly it turns dark again here. Verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Now this is historically clearly pointing to a time before the exile of the Jews to Babylon, using them as an example of what happens to those who will not believe and repent of sin. And here's the description. They forsake the Lord. They forget the holy mountain. They set a table for fortune. They fill cups of wine for destiny. 
What is this? Well, they forsake his holy mountain, specifically temple worship on the mountain of Jerusalem. And they set a table for fortune. Now, in your Bible, the word fortune is probably capitalized. And the reason is, is that it's a proper name. In Hebrew, Gad. And it's associated in Joshua chapter 11 with the description of the Canaanite god, Baal, Baal Gad. And so Gad or Baal Gad is the god of fortune. And then they filled cups of mixed wine for destiny. This is another proper name. And we, might, we would say from the Hebrew transliteration, many, M-E-N-I would be a good way to spell that in English. And these are both gods that were worshipped among the Semitic peoples, and they were later identified by the Greeks and Romans as Jupiter and Venus. And Isaiah pictures the people of God courting these gods. Israel coming to these false gods. They're setting the table. They're giving wine. What is this? This is, this is sacrificing to these gods to get their favor. But the prophet here is declaring that God alone is the sole controller of destiny and of fortune. To worship good luck, to worship destiny, to worship good fortune, this is a denial of the sovereignty of the one true living God. And you might ask, what is God supposed to do with people who insist on occupying the land that belongs to him, eating the food that belongs to him, drinking the water that belongs to him, harvesting the crops that belong to him? What are you supposed to do with these people? What else can he do? Verse 12. You want to worship destiny? I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. By the way, there's a theologically important note here. God is fully responsible for the salvation of all who will be saved from their sin. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God caused us to be born again. This regeneration is directed from and originates with God. It's entirely God's doing. And yet, who is responsible for the rejection of God? Those who reject him are fully culpable. They are fully accountable. Now, this is what theologians sometimes label the general call of God, the call to repent to all people, the call to be saved. But when God issued this general call, when I spoke, you did not listen. Most of his people wouldn't answer. They are responsible. They are culpable. The wrath of God is not based somehow on the supposed cruelty or brutality of God. It's based on his holiness. He created mankind to be immortal beings, but for those who want nothing to do with God, who want to use God's resources and provisions and kindnesses for purely hedonistic pleasure, what else would you have God do with him? What else would you do with him? And so, as we pray for God's future answers to prayer, we pray for God's judgment, or if I could put it this way, we join the martyred saints of Revelation 6 who stand under the altar of God crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So we pray for God's judgment. But now things start to turn a little bit more hopeful. I mean, we're getting to Isaiah, the end of Isaiah, and we want a happy ending. And so we also pray for God's society. We pray for God's society. And now we get another series of contrasts, the righteous and the wicked, And this is a very self-explanatory section, beginning in verse 13. 
Not easy to, not easy to, or it is easy rather to understand. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. And here's some contrasts. Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Very simple contrast here. But there is an interpretive issue. Is this speaking of the contrast of God's people and those who reject him in a before and after sense that those who reject God will be cursed before the coming kingdom of Messiah and then God's people will abound in blessing? Or is it speaking of how God will deal with two different people, the righteous and the wicked, in the coming kingdom of Messiah? Some think there's evidence for a contrast in the coming kingdom. J. Alec Mottier, he writes of the coming millennial reign of Christ, and this is his view. In this new city, blessing will abound. That's easy for us to understand, but then he goes on to say, sin will be hunted down, and the whole earth will be full of the Lord's holy mountain. Now, we might say, well, wait a minute. When Christ returns, sin is going to be eradicated. Now, we're going to see in a moment that Isaiah likely compresses two separate time periods. He didn't have the benefit of progressive revelation as we have from a completed Bible. But as a matter of fact, when Christ returns, certainly all of the living unsaved will be judged and executed for their rebellion. Jesus himself said this when he described the sheep and the goat judgment in Matthew 25. But there will be living survivors of the great tribulation who have followed Christ, tribulation saints. And so to these, Jesus will speak. And he describes this in Matthew 25, verse 34. He describes himself as the coming king. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so what will these survivors do? These believing survivors who have survived the great tribulation, Christ has returned. They're not yet resurrected. Why? Because they haven't died yet. They managed to evade all the earthquakes and the fire and the hail and everything. So what will they do? Well, they'll marry. They'll have children. They'll have grandchildren, all with little sin natures. And so Christ will reign on earth. He'll rule over an essentially Christian society. But we already know that sin will still be a problem. Zechariah 14 speaks of this time in the kingdom when nations will bring their offerings to the Lord in Jerusalem. But there's a, there's a warning that's given in Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Interestingly, we talked about that this morning. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And so there is a sin problem. Now, sin will be present, but it certainly won't dominate like it does now. Why won't it dominate? Well, because Satan, 
whom 1 Peter 5 says, currently, right now at this moment, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, Satan won't be an issue for a while. In fact, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, makes this promise. It's a beautiful promise. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And we say, praise the Lord. But then you keep reading and you say, "Uh uh-oh, until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be released for a little while. And what will he do when he's released? He will deceive many into rebelling against the Lord once again. Revelation 20 Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Not quite as exciting as Armageddon. It's just kind of an instant quick end. So there is reason to believe that Isaiah 65, 13 through 16 speaks of the contrast to the saved and the unsaved in a new society in which the agenda of the king is always first and always primary. We already saw that the Lord could withhold rain from those who refuse to worship him. And so we see these contrasts. We see first the contrast in provision. Verse 13, my servant shall eat, you shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, you shall be thirsty. My servant shall rejoice. You shall be put to shame. We see a contrast in disposition. Verse 14, my servant shall sing for gladness, but you shall cry out for pain of heart. Then we see a contrast in designation. Verse 15, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And then at the end, my servants, he will call by another name. In other words, the rebels will become equal to a curse word. I mean, How many kids do you know named Benedict? They don't name him Benedict. They don't name them Judas. How many little girls do you know named Jezebel? We don't do this. It's a curse. The servants of God, though, will receive another name, one that's not given yet in the Bible at this point. What is this new name? Well, some think that this new name, for those who love the Lord, the new name for Jews who have come to love Christ and Gentiles who love Christ, It's a name that we share. Some think that this new name is given in in Acts 11, verse 26, a Greek word that means little Christs, that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. But that may be the new name. And so we have a contrast in provision, in disposition, and in designation. But whether or not those four verses are speaking of a contrast before and after the coming kingdom or during the coming kingdom, The lesson is clear. Be on the right side. Be on God's blessed side. Verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So we pray for God's society. Another way to pray for God's future answers to prayer, this is completely unoriginal and really the crux of the whole little mini-series. Pray for God's kingdom. Pray for God's kingdom, for precisely what Jesus said to pray for. Now we come to another interpretive challenge because Isaiah is apparently going to compress two different time periods into one vision. 
first, he says in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And as New Testament believers, we can relate to this from Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. But the problem is here is that chronologically, new heaven and new earth happens after the thousand years, after the release and rebellion and judgment of Satan, after the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, in which all the lost of all the ages are now thrown into the lake of fire. Because now Revelation 22 verse 3 says that the curse of sin will be lifted. There's no more curse. But in the millennial time before this, we've already seen that sin will exist. As a matter of fact, the rest of Isaiah 65 confirms that while a glorious new society is abounding, the effects of sin will still survive. So why does Isaiah compress these two events, a new heavens and new earth and a separate kingdom? Why does he do this? Well, let me give you two reasons. First of all, God's revelation isn't complete. It isn't complete. We don't get the full detailed picture until the New Testament. Isaiah did not have the book of Revelation. It would have blown his mind. Isaiah wasn't told that this is a thousand-year kingdom. We're not told that until the third to last chapter of the entire Bible. By the way, six times, just to make sure we get it. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Isaiah is simply looking forward to a day when Messiah reigns on earth, when Israel is restored, and sin is brought under control. For him, that is a new heavens, that is a new earth. That's the first reason. But the second reason that Isaiah can do this is that God has already set a precedent for revealing to Isaiah two different time periods compressed into one statement. God revealed to Isaiah that the Messiah was coming And in one statement, we both have the first coming of the Messiah, which has already happened, and the second coming of the Messiah, which hasn't happened yet, and the church age is completely left out. All you get is this one little white space in your Bible. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Merry Christmas. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Wait a minute, that's not happening now. It goes on to say of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's not happening. And so there's already a precedent for Isaiah to compress two events into one. Now, we can safely say that between verses 17 and 18 here in Isaiah 65, just like between to us a child is born and the government shall be upon his shoulder, between verses 17 and 18 is the current age. And verse 18 begins to describe the initial 1,000-year kingdom of Christ on earth. So now we can establish what do we look forward to? What is happening in this coming kingdom? Well, let's just make a little laundry list here. First of all, we'll see Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom. Verse 18, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. We have a group of our people going to Israel tonight. I think that's so cool. I wish I was with you guys. But the question on these Israel tours every year always is, is it safe? Because you never know what's going to kind of be happening. So there's always a last-minute evaluation of whether it's safe or not. Not anymore. The city will be a joy to the world. 
her people will be a joy to the world because they're living proof that God can make a promise in 2000 BC to an old man named Abram and keep that promise thousands of years later. What else do we see? We see Jerusalem as the model of God's happiness and God's blessing. Jerusalem as the model of God's happiness and God's blessing. In verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What else do we see? We see the, inf- the end of infant mortality for those who are still having children. The end of infant mortality. Verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. We'll see the end of tragically shortened lifespans. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. And by the way, even the rebellious, the sinful, the, the, the descendants of the survivors of the tribulation, they'll enjoy God's gracious longer lifespans. And should he judge one, should he come against a particularly wicked rebel, it will seem a shame that he died so young. The end of verse 20. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Oh, he was only a hundred. How shameful is that? What else do we see? We see the beginning of a thriving economy blessed by God. Verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Listen, have you ever tried to get a home loan? You feel like you have to justify your right to breathe air. You know, I mean, you're sitting there, and they put you in a chair that's about six inches off the ground, and you're sitting there, please let me exist. Please let me have a a house of some sort. And they look down their noses at you and say, let's just determine, I'm sorry, you're not qualified. In fact, you're so unqualified that we're going to have to kill you now. And you just feel so low and so degraded. Not in the kingdom. God's people will build houses and have farms and ranches and orchards and provision and the wealth of the nations will be brought to Jerusalem. What else do you see? We see the end of invasion and danger from which Israel has suffered for so long. The end of invasion and danger. You know, today, because everyone around them wants Israel to cease to exist, they have to maintain a massively effective fighting force. Last year, one reporter wrote a compelling article called why no one wants to mess with Israel's air force. He gave all these reasons why the Israeli air force is the best in the world today. They have to constantly protect themselves, and by many independent measures, Israel is the best in the world at self-protection. But not in the coming kingdom. They don't have to worry about that. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. They shall not build and another inhabit... They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. In other words, they can relax and they don't have to worry that their children and grandchildren will be slaughtered as has happened so many times in history. And one little bonus here, one of two actually, there will even be a change in animal nature. Look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. 
Now, very commonly, commentators will suddenly spiritualize this verse. And they'll say something like, well, this is figurative language to say that all of God's people will live at peace with one another. There's no reason to suddenly spiritualize this and make it figurative. We see figurative language when the Bible is clearly giving us good reason for it to be figurative. But there's nothing impossible about verse 25. This is simply a a partial return to the time of Eden. Adam didn't worry that he was going to be eaten by a lion. He didn't have that concern. Now, Zechariah 14 says that there will be massive topographical changes to the earth, that mountains will sink, islands will disappear, and that Jerusalem will become the highest mountain on earth. We've already seen massive changes to lifespans on the earth. So a change in animals going from carnivore to herbivore, that's not impossible. In fact, it makes a whole lot of sense. One of the curses during the Great Tribulation, specifically the fourth seal judgment, includes 25% of the, of the world's population being killed. How? Revelation 6, verse 8, with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And you say, well, that's a, that's a weird, horrible time. It's actually not so difficult for us to relate to. Today, we still have deaths every year from mountain lions, wolves, bears, sharks, farm animals, bee and wasp stings and dog attacks. And in fact, a recent study just released a couple of months ago said that those aren't going down at all. If anything, they're going up. That even today we have a problem with that. So what will this glorious new kingdom with tangible features be like? Jerusalem is the capital of the kingdom. Jerusalem is the model of God's happiness and blessing. The end of infant mortality, the end of tragically shortened lifespans, a thriving economy, the end of invasion and danger, and a change in animal nature. So what what a glorious time that'll be. So can I encourage you to pray for these certainties for God's church, for God's honor, for God's remnant, for God's judgment, for God's society, and for God's kingdom. I would like to end right there, but there's one little surprise in here. There's just this delightful little nugget just just nestled in here. It almost just seems like an asterisk. A glorious feature of the coming kingdom. Now remember this. This kingdom will be ruled by resurrected saints who rule alongside Christ. That will be us. And of the non-resurrected descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. So we'll have the, the resurrected saints and the non-resurrected but we'll still all call on the name of the Lord. We'll still all be dependent on him for all things. But there's something that will be missing that we have to deal with today. In fact, something that we have to be really good at in this life. How many times in Scripture are we exhorted to wait on the Lord? Psalm 27, verse 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, verse 24, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 20, Our soul waits for the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope, and many others. As a matter of fact, if you ask me, what's the definition of a mature Christian? A mature Christian is one who is content to wait. That's maturity, to be content when God seems to be doing nothing. As a matter of fact, waiting on the Lord is such an important and normal part of the Christian life. That's why we're going to preach a whole series on waiting on the Lord. 
coming up in a couple of weeks. And this is a huge challenge for us. You know that during the Great Tribulation, even some of the saints in heaven still have to wait on the Lord? During the Great Tribulation, the martyred saints are crying out for justice. And Revelation 6 says they are comforted, but they're told to wait. Just hang out for a while. Wait. And so we've gotten very used to that fact. We've gotten used to the fact that when we pray, if you have a moderate amount of faith, you understand that God certainly answers our prayers, but he never makes a guarantee of when. He never makes that guarantee. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 gives gives us a list of saints who were great because they still trusted God. You ready for this? Because they died even when their prayers had not yet been answered. They died in faith. But what about in the coming kingdom? Apparently, waiting on the Lord is going to be a thing of the past. Look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. That waiting on the Lord is done. In fact, just to help us remember this, and to wake you up one last time, you ready? Repeat after me. All will be right. All will be right. Faith will be sight. Faith will be sight. God won't seem late. God won't seem late because you'll never wait. Because you'll never wait. One more time. All will be right. All will be right. Faith will be sight. Faith will be sight. God won't seem late. God won't seem late because you'll never wait. You'll never wait. And now we're really getting repetitively redundant Because not only are we praying for God's answers to prayer, we're praying for God's answers to prayer, which are the instant answers to prayer. So as you're waiting on the Lord, one of the things you can pray for is, Lord, get me to that moment where I will never have to wait again. That's a great prayer. Well, my hope is that you'll look to the coming kingdom, pray for those things that are already guaranteed, and be encouraged. We wait now, but not much longer. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, which is so very clear and so very encouraging to us. And our prayer, Lord, is to be those saints that would stop being in the habit of just praying about our immediate circumstances. As a matter of fact, I would assert, Lord, that it is a relief to take a break from praying about our own trials and our own troubles and to pray for those things that we already know you're going to answer. To pray as the Lord Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to close our eyes and to picture that coming of Jesus Christ with his red splattered garments where he puts down his enemies and he lifts up those who love him, where he takes a period of time to set up a kingdom, to judge the unrighteous and to to lift up the righteous, the period of time when there is renovation, when roads are repaired, and when the the horrible effects of the Great Tribulation are are now brought under control, and uh, cities are remodeled, and a kingdom is built, and an earth filled with nations, which is filled with people who love you, traveling year after year after year to visit with one another and to bring their tribute to the glorious new city of Jerusalem. When every trial and trouble that we've endured will seem but a distant memory, if even that. When we have but to call upon you, and when the words are still on our lips, the answer already arrives. 
to be the resurrected ones from the church age who would rule alongside you, to be those that would encourage those yet to die and yet to be resurrected, to lead them spiritually and to show them what is coming in their own lives. Lord, there's such comfort there. In fact, the Apostle Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we are to encourage one another with those words. And so, Lord, we want to pray for those things that you've already guaranteed because it brings us such joy to pray prayers that are guaranteed to be in your will, guaranteed to happen. And my prayer for these precious saints here tonight is that the the glorious future promises that are for all of us who know Christ would give us comfort and joy right now. That in the midst of waiting on you, we know that there will be a day when waiting is done and it's over and all is made right. So we love you and we thank you. We thank you most of all for Christ who has made all this possible through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension, by which he even now intercedes for every one of us. We love you and thank you in his name. Amen.